0: The stock market forecasters who are right one time and then wrong every time thereafter still get radio shows. and still get interviews and still write books and they're still considered to be widely successful. He Uh, called the
1: the stock market crash of 1917 flawlessly. And our next guess is... Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Jeff is coming back to the microphone from our break, but uh, I am here. If you would like to join the conversation with us, you may... Uh, Email us at either jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Good idea. Good idea. Yeah, to email us. You will give us something to talk about. Nothing happened in the economy. Uh, you, you, we missed part of what you said there. Could you say that again?
0: You know, we don't have much to talk about because nothing happened in the economy this week.
1: Nothing. Nothing at all.
0: This podcast is called the Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything. Neither neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is. And this tape will destruct after it's listened to. You just the-
1: dated yourself. This tape will destruct. Your podcast tape is about to self-destruct. That's why you can't find the <laughs> tape in it anymore.
0: <laughs> It already has self-destructed because it's too old. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can.
1: The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them.
0: So, prepare to be educated. The break-even the, the thing that theoretically spooked the market and caused it to drop 2.45% the S&P 500 this week was the break-even point for inflation. That's an interesting point I want to make. There's a lot of indicators out there that have good forecasters like the the steepness of the yield curve, the yield on the treasuries, uh, oil prices. If you put, take all those together and get it, if they start confirming each other, uh, leading economic indicators, for example, those are good forecasters. However, one of the worst forecasters out there is the break-even point. Yeah, And the reason I say that, in 2010, difference between TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, and traditional 10-year securities, 10-year Treasury Securities, was 2.16%, which means that in 2010, that indicator was forecasting a 2.16% inflation rate in the future. And instead, what we've averaged is about 1.3 or 1.4 or less during the rest of that time. As a matter of fact, it continued to forecast higher inflation than actually happened and continues to do that. The fact that it's up to 2.16, I think it is today. Yeah, 2.16. And forecasting, in effect, 2.16% inflation if it's as accurate as it has been in the past, then we'll have low inflation in the future. Right. I agree with that.
1: That the decision making process that leads to this sort of inversion where 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 people are, are they they're reacting to a fear that tends to be like a Twitter response to a scandal of some kind. It's going to be overblown way beyond what the long-term feel of the thing is, or vice versa, like the Me Too movement. When it first started, it didn't start as a roar. It didn't start taking down celebrities and politicians for uh, making very nasty remarks and so on for a while. So if you had tried to look at some kind of an early big response by a lot of people, you would have seen nothing. It's kind of like the pandemic for in the United States for two months after the pandemic was a big deal. And we were, we were talking about, you know, phase one of the deal with China for the trade war. We said at the time that we believed the only reason why they were signing was because they didn't know how bad the pandemic was going to be over for them. Uh, they were shutting huge chunks of their economy down and they nobody knew how long they would be shut down at that point the majority of the opinion was this is never going to come to the United States So they signed the deal and if you had looked at the at the same kind of gauge of public opinion which is really what this the the break even point is between uh, treasury yields and tips is is, this like immediate kind of democratic response rather than with long-term thought, what is a crowd of people responding to? A a much better uh, gauge of inflation. We really don't have any great gauges of future inflation. There's a lot of kind of faulty gauges, lots and lots of faulty
0: gauges that you average together. In my nearly 40 years of being in the professional financial advice business, One thing I have seen is people who forecast inflation and people who forecast interest rates generally go out in a blaze of glory. But they'll be right back
1: to forecast again.
0: Actually, the the interest rate forecasters, once they go away, they go away. Now, the stock market forecasters who are right one time and then wrong every time thereafter still get radio shows. They still get and still write books and they're still considered to be widely successful he Uh, called the the stock
1: market crash of 1917 flawlessly and our next guess is
0: (laughs) (laughs) truth in that uh harry Dent, for example is is, continues to be famous and continues to show up on talk shows on television and other places and has his own newsletter even though he only got he was right one time
1: for the wrong reasons he even said what the reasons were that he was right. And those reasons were not right, but he got it right anyway.
0: But he's still considered to be a very popular guy because he called anybody who calls a crash. There's generally at any given point, hundreds of people who are publishing that we're about to have a stock market crash. So when we have a stock market crash, inevitably, there's going to be some people who just forecast a stock market crash. And they're considered to be gurus for the rest of their lives. For some so, reason.
1: so why are we not more popular with the national media? When we we called this recession two years ago, we didn't know about the pandemic. Don't tell them that. Uh, but we did say that we were due for a recession, and we have one, so we must be right. The reason is because we also say that anybody could have called that um, that we were heading down. The, I mean, just because we said it, it isn't. We're not trying to give ourselves kudos for it. Uh, it's any uh, reasonable econo- economist was saying the same thing. And what is reasonable mean? Well, they agree with us, right? That's
0: right, obviously. <laughs> That's like Chairman Powell who routinely agrees with us when he talks about what the economy is doing.
1: Yes. So he agrees with us, not the other way around. Right.
0: Let's talk about COVID for just a minute. Uh, we tend to ignore it because it's going downhill a little bit, although we did have a little bump uh, this last week in the number of cases and in certainly the number of deaths. In Bell County in the last week, we've had 60 deaths from COVID. That's the highest number we've ever had.
1: And that's an anecdotal thing. We've got a lot of people that listen all over the country and the world. We're using these local numbers because it's pretty pretty good example for the for the totality of the nation. We're not at the leading edge or at the trailing edge of any
0: of the things that have been going on. But at the same time, we had 497 new diagnosed cases in the county, which is the lowest we've had since the beginning of November, and that we, we use that little microcosm because it's it's local and it tends to come back a little faster. The same thing is happening nationally. What we're getting is a little bump in deaths. Uh, we're getting uh, the mortality rate go up a little bit, but the number of new cases per week is down around sixty to sixty-eight to seventy-five thousand, as opposed to where was it was at a hundred thousand. Uh, a couple of months ago, it was actually two hundred and thirty. Two hundred. to see, we hit two hundred seventy-one thousand on one eight twenty-one. And
1: speaking of anecdotal, so you were talking about Bell County. I have. Uh, I was in a pretty good long conversation with an ICU doctor yesterday here in Bell County, and what she was saying is that though the new hospitalization rate is falling, the people in the ICU are staying longer. So. Yeah uh that they have not freed up any space in the icu even though new even though the new hospitalizations aren't there the mortality rate is dropping they're not having as many people die but they're staying in icu longer
0: i guess what i'm trying to say is don't let your guard down yeah icus across the country are many cases full that means if you go in with a, if you get covid and you happen to be one of those people that gets a severe case there literally may not be an ICU bed for you. You may be stuck in a less intensive care area where your probabilities of recovery fall off. Yeah, so
1: wear your masks. Keep keep that up. We're almost through this. We can see the light at the end, but this is when people tend to make the mistakes when they're saying, all right, I'm tired. We're almost done. We're almost done. Let's celebrate. Well, don't celebrate yet. We're almost there. Let's have a celebration next year or something. <laughs>
0: I got some more good news in the economy.
1: Oh, good. Last th- I, Wait, is it better than last week's good news, which is that less people were dying rather than... I, that's like less bad news.
0: Well, this is... Well, I get, yeah, it's less bad news. Okay. The number of workers applying for new unemployment benefits fell by 111,000 from last week. Well, I see it's last week we're reporting on from the previous week. It's down to 730,000 per week, which is... Great compared with the 900,000 we were stuck at for a long time and the millions we had earlier, but it's still a lot more than the 200,000 we had before the pandemic.
1: Okay. can, Can I explain that just a second? This is a weekly number of new people that have been laid off.
0: Well, they're not new people.
1: They're new claims. New claims. Right. New claims. So they have not been in and say, I will be, well, they're not new people. The babies can't go to the unemployment office. I, I see what you did there. <laughs> uh. Brand new people showing up at the unemployment office, crying kind of, and making messes. They're coming out of the clone vats. Um, in a normal week, what is normal? I don't know what normal is anymore. In a week before the pandemic, we were averaging around 200,000 people a week got laid off in the United States. When you think of the 150 to 160 million workers, that's not a whole lot. But weekly, you know, you can see that there's there's a lot in there and the people are getting laid off. Okay, we've been hovering at the new weekly claims around 900,000 people for several months. We had a dip in the summer where it dropped down and those numbers started coming down and coming down and we said, all right, this is this is not the end, guys. This is... We need more stimulus to bring these numbers down. And we're. this is, the point is that the stimulus is hitting and we're seeing the numbers come down. Um, this is not something we want to stimulate forever. That's bad for economies, horribly bad for economies. But when you're in a situation like this, this is the flip side of the coin from what the Chinese did. Chinese went full draconian. We're shutting down the nation. Any area that has it, if you're walking the streets you're going to jail. And that's verifiable. You can look at how they reacted to that. We didn't react that way. I don't think anybody wants us to react that way. Fines of $500 for not wearing a mask had enough people upset. Can you imagine if people were going to jail? That would just, we wouldn't be able to function. So they were able to shut that down where we're doing the other way around. We're saying, how do we stick let's use the carrot. Let's use the, the, let's stimulate the money into the economy. Let's get these people spending, tell them to stay home, keep spending. And it's having a much slower reaction than the draconian thing. And the same people that were upset about somebody getting arrested for wearing, for not wearing a mask might be upset about free money going out to everyone. But I haven't heard a single person complain about receiving the check. Have you? No, I really haven't. I hear a lot of people saying, we're spending too much. And and I say, what'd you spend your stimulus on? Oh, we have this great news. And then they talk about the thing that they spent the stimulus check on. I'm like, all right. Well, it's when people are complaining about the traffic's too bad as they sit in it. You are the traffic. Um, So we can't continue to stimulate at this level forever. That'd be really bad for us as an economy, we would not be able to function well. That'd be, a, that'd be a form of socialism at high degree. However, short term, it is a requirement to keep us from destroying the very tools that we use to make a living when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. And that's vital to understand that if we lose those tools, if the business shuts down and they auction off, literally are auctioning off the tools of their trade, it's much more expensive to get them back than it was to sell them. That's just the way this works. And there'll be a shortage of them at the time that that happens. So the government stepping in to say, you, you maybe have to have your doors shut or you're maybe having low business, but how do we stimulate you enough so that you're around so that we don't have to spend tons more money to get the tools of your trade back to have a functional business? Boy, that was a... That was a long-winded rant on my part. Sorry about that.
0: There's another aspect. Of this that's kind of weird. First off, we're having these layoffs continue at 700 and some thousand per week, which is a tremendous number of people to be laid off, which indicates that businesses are shutting down and they're laying off people. And at the same time, we're seeing a tremendous demand for blue, what's called blue-collared workers. And businesses are reporting from all over the country in surveys and anecdotally that they can't find enough workers to get the job done. For example, warehousing. All this ordering that's going on and all this delivering that's going on, all that stuff has to be put in warehouses and then has to be pulled back out of the warehouses to put into the shipment to your house. I can't find enough workers. They can't, can't find enough workers in construction. So that sounds like a contradiction. And the initial reaction is, well, we shouldn't be paying so much unemployment. Well, in fact, we should be paying the unemployment. What happens is, if you're working if you were working at a restaurant and you've lost your job because you're a waiter the entry requirements to be a waiter at a restaurant or be a bus boy at a restaurant are you will be able to walk and able to clean yourself up before you it's, present it's, them. they don't call them bus boys anymore what do they call them
1: um people that clean up I don't know they, they don't call them boys that's for sure bus person <laughs> I don't think they call them bus persons either, but it's not bus boy. That's that's from your your childhood, I think.
0: But at any rate, the people who work in restaurants have very, very low entry requirements. Now, to go to work in a and they make well, in most cases, they make really relatively low incomes. In some cases, in some cases, they do really good income. But the point is, if you want to work in a warehouse, for instance, you can't you're not just lifting boxes. Most of the people who work in warehouses have to operate machinery and then they have to receive a certification to operate that machinery before they can be hired. And the warehouse owners are not paying people to be trained. You have to, if you want to work in a warehouse running a forklift, for example, you have to go through a course that's relatively expensive, particularly if you're out of work. And in that course, you become a certified forklift operator. Then you can apply for a job at a warehouse and probably get hired right away. The same thing is true in the building trades. You can't just walk on. There are very few jobs in the building trades that are very, very, that are low-skilled, no-certification jobs. Even operating, even the person who hammers the boards together has to be certified, in many cases, have a certificate that says he's doing this safely because he's operating a piece of equipment, a nail gun. And he has to know what he's doing to get the boards nailed together correctly. So, and the the big bottleneck is in the highly professional people, the electricians and the plumbers, and the people like that, the concrete pourers, so what we have is a transition that's going on in the country right now and a kind of conflict that's going on. We used to have a lot of people working in low-skill, no-entry-requirement jobs, and we just don't have very many of those jobs anymore. What we've got is medium-skilled jobs that require certification. And so you've got a lot of people. Incidentally, there's a shortage of schools to teach people how to do these things, and the schools are all jammed up with people, which is one of the reasons we have a housing shortage going on in the United States right now. Right.
1: So all of, this, all of this stuff, some of these pieces are fundamentally shifted items that are now going to be different after the pandemic. Some of these pieces are likely to go back to the way they were before the pandemic.
0: You've got this challenge. If you were working as a very successful waiter, let's say, or waitress, and you're getting good tips and getting good income, do you stop what you were doing? Go get certified to work in a warehouse, which may or may not be a big thing on the other side of the pandemic, or go get certified to work on a construction site, which may not be your ideal thing to work at. It's outside. It's in the weather. It is rough and tumble. When you used to be a really good waiter, do you wait for the waiter job to come back? Or do you go pay for the training to take another job that's very different from what you knew how to do before? And that's one of the problems we're running into in the United States today. Coming
1: back you may not be going back to where you were. Uh, and that's, that is, you know, when it comes to, you. Meant, we, we, we talk about this in the newsletter for several different periods. Um, when, when you have a layoff in a restaurant and there's nobody else hiring in the service industry, it's very hard to turn around and go to work as a machinist it's hard to turn around and go to work as an accountant or as a. What what do you do if you're in the service industry and there's some sk, there's a skill set there that's really hard to train. Uh, it's trainable, but there's not there's not a training school to how to be a good waiter in a lot of places. So as you're waiting tables, you may be the best at that. Make a significant income doing that. If that's the case, you probably didn't lose your job. Uh but you might have. So a lot of the high-end restaurants did all right in the middle of this. A lot of the high-end restaurants failed. The, this is where it gets kind of choppy. If you're a high-end employee at a retailer service establishment, Neiman Marcus, you probably got hired somewhere relatively quickly because that's a high-end skill set, even if it's not one that you have a certificate for. The ability to be respectful to people that are not respectful to you is a difficult skill to acquire. And to do it in a way that lets them feel good anyway, uh, that's a, that's a skill set that's easily hireable. But if you are working at a restaurant and it's just what you do, you've been doing it for years and years and years, it's hard to go get another job because the skill sets are different. So this is why we've got the technical school backup and we've got clumpiness happening all over in different
0: parts of the economy. You say it's easy to get a job, but the face-to-face sales people are among the highest unemployment right now because there's just not very many jobs in face-to-face sales because people are not going typically to Kohl's or Newman Markets or someplace else to buy things. They're buying them online. And, and it's not
1: just there. In an area that you would think this would be pretty simple, um, medical and pharmaceutical sales. That's generally stuff like um, surgical instruments and so on to hospitals. That's had a high degree of layoff because just because the doctor has a mask on and you have a mask on doesn't mean that face-to-face meetings are happening. Uh, There's liability on the side of the sales organization. There's liability everywhere. And so there have been a lot of layoffs in something we thought you know, or, you know, kind of common sense. Well, of course, medical is going to be fine. They're actually getting more business, right? Well, not necessarily. Depends on where you're working. Actually, medical has been laying people off. Depends on but where you're working in it.
0: Yeah. Unless you're in the ICU or someplace that's in high demand because of COVID, the clinics are having trouble finding people to come in because people don't want to come in because they're concerned about catching COVID. And
1: people don't want to go in, say say they wanted to have a nose job. You know, a tummy tuck. Those numbers have dropped. People have put that on a delay. They say, I'm going to get my nose job done in a year when the pandemic's not on. Or, crazy thought, they may just get comfortable with
0: their nose. In further answer to John's question, there it is. There's an awful lot of the GDP that's not being done in services that isn't going to involve backups at ports and so on, because buying and selling things traditionally in our GDP the goods purchased have been a small portion of the GDP. It's mostly services. Services are hit really hard, and we're doing a lot of goods purchasing right now. And that's one of the things, by the way, that's holding things up. You know, because if if we see this as a temporary demand surge in buying stuff as opposed to buying services, do you want to invest a lot of money in expanding your business or expanding your warehouses or so on to accommodate this surge in business right now when it may go away in a couple of months or a few six months? That's that is the question. That is the big question. And this this is, you know, it
1: kind of goes back to a question we were asking when the trade war first got roaring Uh, and then what actually happened during the trade war. So the trade war roaring, the trade roar. I said the trade roar. Um, The trade war roaring happened uh, in steel. This, was the, this is kind of the front line of the trade wars everywhere. It was a uh, tariff on everyone, ally, enemy, uh, frenemy, doesn't matter. Everybody's got a steel tariff. Well, that caused the uh, U.S. steel industry to, a- to be able to charge more for steel. It didn't raise their production tremendously, although it did raise the production. It wasn't tremendous. And the profit margin for the steel companies went up tremendously. The union for, for uh, unions for this area went to the, manu- to the managers and said, hey, give us a piece of this. We're working extra hard. We're working overtime and you're making this extra money. And the management said, yeah, but it could stop on the same whim that it started on. And if we raise your pay now, do you want to pay decrease when they stop it? So we didn't see pay go up in the steel working industry. Instead, we saw steel prices go up, which is exactly what happens when you put tariffs on things. Just, I mean, that's just It's not a mystery. This is something that we've known. for. It's a, it's a tax. When you raise a tax, it makes it more expensive. So there you go. What were you going to say?
0: Well, it kind of dovetails into what you're talking about, about tariffs. You know, we put the tariff on Canadian lumber and uh, tried to put the pressure on them. So the Canadians responded really f- in a really interesting fashion. They came down into the United States and started buying lumber mills in the United States and right. building the United States so they could produce lumber in the United States and avoid the tariffs. Yep. Now, this is in- one of the interesting things, and it has directly to do with investment. One of the first alt investments that were very popular was timber property. And uh, the Yale and Harvard uh, endowments did really, really well for including during the 2007 and nine financial collapses because they had these alt investments, which by the way, really didn't do all that well, but they looked good on paper. Yeah,
1: on, it wound up actually causing costing the career of multiple people that worked on those endowments because it wound up just being on paper and not reality. When you went to sell the property, you found out that the property value had dropped.
0: Well, a lot of money went into timberland after that because they saw the Yale and Harvard Endowments did so well on timberland. And so we have record quantities of timberland in the United States today. We've become far more efficient at growing trees fairly quickly. And the funny thing is tree prices are down to where they were in the 1980s. In other words, the lumber board prices, the lumber prices for trees growing on your property is so low that in many cases it doesn't cover the taxes on the property. Now that sounds a little strange. Meanwhile, if you because if you go to Lowe's or Home Depot or someplace or your local lumber company, and you try to buy timber, you try to buy boards, you find they're the highest price you've ever seen, and they are at record prices. And the, but the money is all being made in the lumber mills. The lumber mills only have so much capacity. Right. They're not. And- they
1: haven't been making new lumber mills. In fact, about a third of them have been purchased up over the years, and it hasn't been too recently. Although some of it is recent. By Canadians. About a third of the lumber mills in the southern United States,
0: which is where the majority are, are owned by Canadian companies. And that's the result mainly of the tariffs. Now, this is an interesting point, and this is the practical application of this. Alternative investments may do well on paper for a while, but they're scary. They're just flat scary. And I would to advise you to stay away from whatever is done well in the alternative investments, because with time, by the time news comes out that this alternative investment is doing really well and you ought to get some, it's probably not doing well and it's already tumbled. But you don't know it yet because they're so illiquid; it's very hard to price them. Yeah. And right now, were you invested in did you invest it? You invested in timber when that was a popular thing to do—Timberland. Sure thing. I saw advertisements for it and recommendations for it, and you had alternative investments in Timberland you would probably be hurting for certain right now. It's kind of like when the real estate boom occurred. Many of you don't remember it. Back in the 19, early 1990s, people were investing in real estate limited partnerships and REITs and real estate investment trusts because real estate boom was underway. And in many cases, when they finally backed out of those things, they had tremendous losses. In some cases, losses that weren't tax deductible.
1: And there, there's a another similarity here in that that particular real estate boom was centered on some tax credits that corporations were getting for building uh, when you incentivize or disincentivize actions it's funny people actually follow those things so these credits were being given and people were companies were building way too much real estate uh, on their real estate even though they did what was it you used to say when you space for rent, you just drive down through Austin and you could look through one window and out the other everywhere because everybody had built it. It caused Austin to have a real estate collapse that was later the reason why it was so cheap for so many companies to come and
0: base in Austin. There's a new kind of office architecture called see-through buildings. That's what
1: it was. That's the joke you used to tell all the time.
0: Because you could drive down through there and say, now leasing, the now leasing sign would be hanging on a building and you could see in the front and out the back because there's nobody inside. Yeah.
1: Well, it, that's the case now. It doesn't say now leasing on it, but you can see out the back, there's nobody inside just for different reasons.
0: The alternative, the whole issue of investing, and we, this takes us to GameStop and Bitcoin and things like that. And what's that other dog dog coin or doge coin? Dog. 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 dog coin. There's, there's a fundamental truth that you can depend on over time. In short... In a short speculative bursts, you may see this violated, but there'll be more people lose money than make money when this happens. And that is, if you look at the underlying economy, you look at the underlying reality of what's going on in investments you want to make. Is it actually creating utility and making money, or is it simply rising in price? And if you buy something because it's simply rising in price, be prepared to get burned and get burned badly because it's going to happen. And
1: what's likely to happen, this is if you're buying something because it goes up, the logic follows that you will sell it when it goes down. Uh, And we see it happen so regularly. Everyone knows the saying, buy low, sell high. If you can actually use that when the pressure is on, that's where the rarity comes in that most people can't do it. Even professionals in investment, they get panicky when the world is panicking. They get extra brave when the world is extra brave. Trying to find that equilibrium and decision-making around this stuff is hard. It's hard for anybody. You, you said, uh, well, let's see, how many years have you been doing this? 1982. So you're right up there at 39 years. 39 yeah. years you've been doing this. But how, I was privately investing before that. Right, and you were private. How do you feel when the stock market drops 50%? Just kind of walk through it. Is that really how you feel, or do you still feel a little twinge in your gut and you go, oh, I know what you say to yourself.
0: Well, actually, there was a time when I got knots in my stomachs when I saw, when I saw the stock market drop 50%. There's a couple of things we have going for us. First off, our clients, we've managed to brainwash them into believing They should hang on and not sell when the market's low.
1: Be very, very well diversified and don't sell when the market drops.
0: And I have a lot of faith in them, which I didn't used to have. And the other thing is I know that when you get a fifty percent sudden 50% drop in the market because I've been through enough of these, that is an opportunity to buy because it's going to come back because the United States economy hasn't collapsed. And we can talk about whether or not we're likely to get one at a given point, too, by the way. Right. And there's a simple answer to that. Yes. Well...
1: Are we likely? Is there a likelihood that's that we will have a fifty percent drop in the stock market in the next ten years? I would say it's,
0: yes. It may or may not happen. I, but it might not. The point is, every major market collapse we've seen is when either a major asset class, and I'm talking about a made not not something small like GameStop or right. right. right soars outside of reality in other words it's the what i call the wily coyote syndrome enron <laughs> well enron enron looked like it was making profits but it wasn't but the point is when the economy tanks or starts down the economy itself starts down profitability in the company starts down and continues to go down and it looks like we're getting a real honest to god recession going on and the stock market continues up that is a very, very bad sign. That means that the stock market will wake up and say, "Well, wait a minute! I just ran off the top of the." I don't know. Is Wiley Coyote a dated thing now because people don't see Roadrunners much? Oh, no, we East. we
1: still we still know who that is. I think if you've got a listener that doesn't know who Wiley Coyote is, they just need to go and watch some Wiley mm-hmm. Coyote cartoons right now.
0: Basically, you're in the position when the economy has sunk. When the remember the economic growth underneath the stock or a set of investments or an asset class. Is what is driving the price of that asset class ultimately? Temporarily, you're going to see people buying and selling driving the price. In the short term, the market is basically gambling. In the long term, it's an economic monitor. And if you if you're in the position where you're buying into the market because it's been going up or because its stocks are splitting or whatever you're doing, while the underlying earnings and underlying profitability is falling, then you're in the position of Wally Coyote who ran off the top of the mesa and suddenly whips out this sign that says, oops, or yipe, or something. And he's about to fall. He's usually carrying an anvil and he drops the anvil as he's falling. The anvil doesn't fall as fast as he does. And it lands gets, on his head. Yeah. On his head. So for instance, GameStop has very low earnings and it's a hundred and some dollars. of It's a hundred and I think 101 today. By very mm-hmm. low earnings,
1: it means it went through negative and, and his skin just kept going down low, low, low earnings.
0: Dogecoin can't be used to buy anything it has no use whatsoever except as a speculative vehicle. Uh Bitcoin is effective the same in effect the same thing. It, theoretically you can buy things with Bitcoin and I know Elon Musk said he might be selling cars for Bitcoin at some point but he doesn't at the present and there's literally no active use for the for Bitcoin.
1: Do you know what he said
0: this what he week? Said. Even though
1: even though Tesla just bought several billion dollars of bitcoin and they made a massive profit in the deal he said this week that he doesn't think that there's a future for bitcoin i agree with him completely and i do too i mean he understands the math behind the encryption of bitcoin which means that it's gonna go away at some point it has to because our encryption is getting better
0: and it won't be keeping up with it the other thing is when you invest in something the question is what do you do with that if you're, if you're buying a, a basket of stocks that's well diversified in the United States economy where the companies are making profits, they're creating something that people need and they're selling it for a profit, there's a reason that that profit is there and there's a reason that they're going to do well. And you can take a look at their profits and their likely profits into the future and say, would I buy this? Whole? It's a question that, uh, that uh, I've heard from many different gurus in investing that are very accurate over the years. If I could buy the whole company, would I buy it? At the price at this at this stock price, if I could buy the whole company, if I had enough money to buy the whole company, would I buy it? In other words, would it be a good purchase to take this company private right now? If it wouldn't, it's probably a bad idea to buy the stock. With asset classes, by the way,
1: I agree. Um, th- this is this is a piece of logic that I wish people would just incorporate into their decision making. When you're buying because of a split or buying because of that sort of information, unless you're willing to really understand the company you're buying and take on the additional risk of being in a single stock, I think a better approach is to say, let's get diversified enough to own a chunk of the economy of the United States and the rest of the world. Because I believe that our economies, the whole world's economies are gonna continue to grow. There are definitely places that are moving backward in time but the places that are moving forward are are pulling the whole world with them. Uh, China is growing. We will be back in growth. We're almost there now. I believe that this quarter we are in growth, uh, even though we've had a tough, tough quarter. We're not like the Europeans who are almost certainly at a re- in a recession at this point again. They've had the, they're in the double dip. Uh, I believe that the economy of the United States is going to continue to get stronger as we move forward. There are definitely hurdles. Tax law changes, inflation, low productivity. Those are all things that we have to keep watching and we have to keep fighting the good fight on. That's just par for the course. There's never been a point in history of the United States that those weren't dangers that you had to fight against. Just keep that in mind. It's not like we suddenly have a new monster rearing its head that has never been here before, barring the pandemic. And that's actually been around before other pandemics have. This is something we can use history as a guide for. And I see a lot of people in the United States, I see a lot of people face-to-face that when compared to workers of the rest of the world, there's absolutely no comparison. The United States has the best workforce in the world and that's not going away. We've lost some ground on market share to to China in the pandemic and that our manufacturing has been shut down longer than theirs has. But we're coming back. And when we come back, I hope we do it with a vengeance. That's our, that is our history. If you'd like to ask us a question and actually have us talk about it on the air, um, you may email us at jake at tpwc.com or jeff at tpwc.com. We've only got about 15 minutes left till the end of the second hour here. So if you'd like to email, now's a good time, jeff or jake at tpwc.com. We'll be back on the other side. And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. And on the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Together, we are bold And economists. And we're here to answer questions and hopefully give some education on what's going on in the big wide world. And talking about personal finance as well as the macro look at the economy. What's going on? Um, something happened this week. Isn't that amazing?
0: Well, that's good. The sun came up, I think, seven times. Right. Well, mostly.
1: Yeah. Or either that or the world was turning around seven times. I don't know. Uh, something was going on. What went on? Um, on Wednesday, we had a weird event take place. Wednesday in India came before Wednesday in the United States, as it typically does. And they had to shut down their largest stock exchange because their cash instruments weren't updating properly or at all. So they shut down the stock exchange to reopen it. There was a lot of uproar over that. I realize that most people in the United States have absolutely no information on this. But it was out there. The largest stock exchange in India was shut down for the majority of a day. There's there's about $1.3 trillion in assets there, which is... Pretty small by American standards, but when you use the T word when you're talking about money, it's big. They shut down for a day or a big chunk of a day. The same day in the United States, the Fed wire shut down. What is the Fed wire? If you've ever sent a stream of money from your bank to a credit card company or from your bank to an investment firm. It's something called an ACH form, uh, which sounds Scottish from the, uh, but it's not, it's, it is automatic clearinghouse. It's the federal reserves method of moving money around and they're building a new method that works on blockchain, which is a same day movement of money. So there's some cool stuff coming on Wednesday. It stopped working for about three and a half hours. Now, they're saying it's because that there was a human error in one of the update processes of some of their software in the background that they started an update process that was supposed to start after close of business, before close of business. There's some weird coincidence that it's sort of the same thing happened to a very different system based in a, in the, on the Indian version of, of the Federal Reserve that took place on the same day. So there's some weirdness going on out there in the cash market. The Federal Reserve got it all started back up. It's working, it's functional, no money was lost. But if you had a payment going to a credit card, if it went during the time period that it was supposed to go through in this little window, it didn't happen then, it happened later in the day. So nothing, no damage was done from this, but it's another interesting kind of factor what happened there? And I'm sure the Federal Reserve is working quite hard to make sure it doesn't happen again. They said it was a procedural error. Yeah. Not a software glitch. Not a software glitch. That's what I said. They There was human error on the procedure. Yeah. They started an update of software before the end of closing, or before just, the end of business. They, they were supposed to do it after business hours. They did it before business hours.
0: Or I was during. agreeing with and I wasn't trying to correct you on that. Yeah. The point is... We assume certain things will run smoothly all the time. And one of the things we should have learned from this, uh, this stock market correction and this pandemic is we make those assumptions at great risk. I'll give you another one, one that uh, you may have already heard of. You heard about Infinity Q? I have, but please continue. Well, Infinity Q is a fund, it's a mutual fund that was marketed as being revenue market neutral, but would make you money in up markets and down markets both. And it actually did that for, it's an alternative asset. It's a, It has alternative assets in its, in, its, um, in its portfolio. And the alternative assets theoretically would um, generate positive returns in up markets and down markets. And you could get a relatively high return in the fund over a long period of time without having to worry about down markets. Anytime that you see something like that, don't walk, run in the opposite direction. Apparently they were sold by quote, financial advisors, end quote, across the country who earned nice commissions on them. And they were very widely bought. There was a tremendous amount of money, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars went into this fund. The SEC shut it down this week. They shut it down because basically it made money until people decided to take money out. Which sounds that,
1: amazingly like a Ponzi scheme.
0: The point is that they were... The, the alternative investments that they were putting their money into were complex and complex derivative derivatives on those alternative investments were so thinly traded that the fund was generally the only, pre, the only market maker for that particular investment. So if the fund bought a few of them, the price would go up and it looked like you, you're doing really, really well. And as long as nobody sold, it was in good shape. There is an irrefutable law. I say irrefutable, immutable is probably a better word, law in, in the investment markets. If you want to return above that, that you can get in a bank CD, you will have volatility. You will have and risk. You will have up and down movements in the value. If you And the higher the value that you want to obtain over the long term in an investment portfolio or in an investment, the higher the amount of up and down movements will be. The, they didn't just shut down the company.
1: Sometimes the SEC will go and shut down the company. They also, in the shutdown, banned its chief investment officer from trading. And this is the reason. After discovering issues, valuing the fund's holdings. So it, what does that mean? It means that if you're banned from doing business in your line of business and you're really top in the world kind of category in that line of business and you're told you're not allowed to do that by the regulator, you've done something wrong. It's not something that they do unless they think you have done something wrong. The act of banning is an official regulatory act that doesn't need to go to court to do. Shutting down the company might have to go to court the act of banning someone from doing something, if, if I start telling the world there will never be down markets or anything silly like that, the SEC can shut us down and they don't have to go to court on that. They just say, nope, you're not allowed to say that. That's within the guidelines of existing stuff and we're the regulator, you have to stop. I could go back and appeal it. I can go through a different process. But when they stop somebody like that, when they say the head of trading at a $1.8 billion fund is banned from trading, that's a big deal. And they're banned for trading over issues valuing the fund's holdings. That means that he was lying. <laughs> um when that's that's the translation. If there's issues valuing the firm's fund that have to do with something big enough to cause the person doing the valuation to get banned from trading, it means that he was saying they were worth something
0: that they were not worth. Anytime you run across somebody who's offering something that says, we'll get you a decent return with little or no risk, that is a problem. That is a serious problem. Anything above a CD rate carries risk. The question is whether you can see the risk. One of the areas that we talk about is some fixed annuities. When you buy a fixed annuity that's offering you a relatively high payout rate or a high rate of return, you see advertisements for these on a regular basis. They're not regulated by the SEC, so they can make some ridiculous advertisements: six and a half percent guaranteed return and things like that. If you're really going to get a return that that's that is that much higher than a bank CD, you're taking a big risk. You just don't know what it is. The risk is very simple. We haven't had insurance companies go bankrupt in a long time a lot of big insurance companies but i've been around long enough to remember back the early 1980s when they were going bankrupt why did they go bankrupt because interest rates went up when when the interest rates went up to kill inflation a lot of insurance companies had big bond portfolios and they had been promising high rates of return and even though some of them didn't go out of business a lot of them got hammered really good when they didn't pay the returns they promised We're at a record we've had record low interest rates in the United States, and interest rates are almost certainly going to rise from here. That means that the portfolios held by those insurance companies that offer those annuities with really, really high payouts are going to see their portfolio shrink. And it's going to, and alternative investments, alternative meaning bonds and stocks, probably will show a higher potential rate of return than the annuities are showing at this point. People will start to take their money out, and that's when you find out whether they're any good. An important thing to recognize. In the stock market, you may see the ups and downs. But if you're in a reputable broker broker dealer firm, the broker dealer firm is protected by the SIPC. The, the The price of the securities inside are not protected by the SIPC. But the fact that if the broker dealer goes out of business, is your will your securities still be there? That's protected up to five hundred thousand dollars by the SIPC. And there's more details to it than that. And you need to look at them. But the the point is. Your bank is protected by the FDIC, not the bank, but your bank account is protected by the FDIC. There is no federal insurance agency that backs insurance companies. They,
1: they have insurance agencies that back them, but it's other insurance agencies, and there are state-level uh, functional equivalents sometimes they don't work very well together. So if one is failing in a state and they have assets in another state, they states have arguments over whose fund is supposed to bail out whom.
0: Maybe I just been in this too long, but I remember people coming to me back when I was early in the business in the 1980s with portfolios that had been in annuities and life insurance where they had lost 30% of their money and they were being offered a payout. This was the the payout they were going to get. Here, take your money, but you just take 30% off the top of it. And that's what you get.
1: We are ending the month of February uh, for our program this, this week. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we do portfolio manage- management on a fiduciary basis. We give investment advice and we actually manage portfolios for people, for people with high net worths. Uh if you would like to talk to us off the air about that you can uh call us locally where we have voicemail waiting on the weekend real live people uh during the week locally at 254-947-1111 or toll free 1-800-914-7526 that's 800-914 plan you can go to the webpage thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com uh where you can sign up for our newsletter read our newsletter sign up uh to podcasts listen to recordings going all the way back or contact us through the form or jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com.